Welcome to the Working with India podcast, conversations to help cross-cultural managers deepen their understanding of India, produced by learningindia.in. Today's guest is Craig Storty, famous author and cross-cultural consultant. I've been looking forward to having Craig as a guest on the show for a long time and was thrilled to be able to talk to him about what has changed in working with India over the past 15 years. I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I do. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Working with India podcast. Today we kick off our brand new year of podcast with a very, very special guest guest for me. Uh, today we have Craig Storty, who's the author of several different books that many of you may be familiar with. Uh, Americans at Work, Speaking of India, Cross-Cultural Dialogues, Figuring Foreigners Out, and, and many others are there. Mr. Storty's work really provided the foundation for me as an outsider coming into India. Um, to really get my first look at critically understanding what was going on in this in this new place. And so I, I give him the credit for giving me that foundation. I'm really looking forward to talking with him today. So uh, good morning, Craig. How are you today? Uh, good morning, Neil. I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah, that's it's really, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's a great pleasure. So thank you for uh, agreeing to this interview. Uh, my first question for you is just to kind of give some background to people. I know in, in my world of, of doing some kind of cross-cultural training, um, that you you know your your name is very big out there. Some people may or may not have heard of you. Hopefully they have. But give people a little bit of background about who you are, how you got exposed to uh, some of your global working, and specifically with India. Yes, well, um, I'm an American. Uh, I do have uh, my own business now, doing intercultural training and consulting for a lot of um, U.S. clients, a lot of multinationals. I actually got into this field. We call it the intercultural field in my world. Um, as a young man working uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco, uh, I come from Vermont, and Morocco is not much like Vermont. <laughs> and uh, I just was fascinated by all the things I didn't understand, and that people who looked like me and talked like me could think so differently from yeah. me. So I really got got interested in the fact that people may look the same on the surface, but underneath they're they're really different. So after I left the Peace Corps, I, I um, started really teaching myself about this. The intercultural field is, is not that old. It really began after World War II here in the United States, and now it's an established field, and you can even get degrees in it in some universities. But at the time, that was the early 70s. It really was just coming into its own. So at that time, one taught oneself a lot of this. So I did a lot of reading about it. Subsequently, I moved back overseas. This was to Nepal when I when I got married, hmm. and I started doing training for the Peace Corps, including uh, cultural training. And um, and that's when I wrote my first book called The Art of Crossing Cultures. And I saw that there was a there was a need for this kind of information. And um, we moved back to Washington D.C. after I finished my time in Nepal which is a great place to live if you want to do intercultural um, sorts of things. And I started um, doing trainings and writing more books, and that's how I got into the field in general. How I got into India was, I think it was the mid-'80s, somebody who'd heard about me said, you know, one of our clients, at the time it was Ernst & Young, is bringing a lot of Indians over to the U.S. to help their clients with year 2000 IT problems. Right, right. And it was it was the first time that a lot of American companies 
started working quite closely with folks from India. I mean, mm-hmm. Deloitte was one example, but others were doing it too. So there was a lot of demand for understanding the differences between our two cultures. So that's how I got into the, the India side of this. And that just grew, and now many clients ask for this kind of training. Yeah, and I think a lot of people may not know that you actually wrote a lot of the material that you ended up doing the training for for the Peace Corps, correct? Yes, I did actually. Um, after I, I after I left the Peace Corps as a as a volunteer and later as a staff member, I was asked oh many years later, late nineteen nineteen ninety six, to write a training manual. It was the first worldwide cultural training manual the Peace Corps had ever written, <laughs> and I was it was called Culture Matters and. And really, the first time that Peace Corps started doing really, well, really doing intercultural training, they did a lot of cultural training, preparing Americans how to interact successfully with Bolivians or Ghanaians or Indians, for that matter. They didn't do a lot of intercultural training, which in my field means comparing your culture to the other culture, not just learning about the other one, but but realizing what the differences were. So Culture Matters kind of became the template for, for Peace Corps training. They still use it, uh, it's, it's over, it's over uh, 15 years old now, they still use it in many training programs, and they had developed materials subsequent to that, but a lot of them sort of followed some of the ideas that, um, that, that I wrote up in, in Culture Matters. And actually, I took Culture Matters and turned it into my book, Figuring Foreigners Out, Hmm. Uh, culture matters is very Peace Corps specific, but many of the concepts I thought would work in a workbook for the for the, the average person, not just Peace Corps volunteers. So that's still used. Uh, that's still used a lot. Yeah. Well, I think actually my favorite book of yours is actually Americans at Work, um, hmm. because as a, an American living overseas, to see myself uh, kind of put under the microscope. And, and looked at all sorts of things, kind of like we we're talking about that we're actually comparing it and noticing that, you know, your home culture in our case, US is not the default. It's just another, uh, culture that's out there. And getting to see, uh, Americans in that light was, was really uh, insightful for me. There's a lot of quotes I, I use from that book, especially the one that says that, uh, Americans believe that deep down inside of everyone else, there's a small American living in there. That one's, <laughs> <laughs> that one's really stuck with me over the years. Um, Did I phrase it that well? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it, it was it was really yeah. insightful for me to say. Yeah, we do we do believe that. Yeah, no, I wish I'd said it that way. That's much more clever. I'm sure that I don't. I would have remembered if I'd said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, I'll give you credit. Yeah, no, I'm going to start using that. <laughs> no, I uh, that book, as you may or may not recall, that really was written for non-Americans who right, have right. to work with us and to help them figure us out. But I get lots of emails from, from Americans, of course, who read it. Because as you know, Neil, we don't see our own culture very well right. uh, for reasons we all understand, that you can't see it when you're part of it. You can see it when you leave it, which is what, what expatriates learn when they go overseas. But you don't see your own culture when you're surrounded by it. There's no really vantage point. And of course, if you're going to deal with other cultures, you, you need to see where you're coming from because at the end of the day, what you have to figure out is what are the differences. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't identify differences if you haven't first described, if you, if you don't first understand your own culture. Then you take a look at another one and then the differences are obvious. But without starting 
with your own culture, there, there's no way to make a comparison. And if you don't make a comparison, you don't get to the differences. So uh, that that's kind of what um, I had in mind when I wrote that book. Yeah, and I think the, the point you make is very good because um, even when we study another culture, we still, or being an expat doesn't automatically qualify you for, for cultural understanding because a lot of times you get there and you say, okay, this is a different culture. Everyone else is different than me. I'm the normal one. Everyone else is different. But until you actually see that you you are different too, you are strange, you are unique, you are weird, um, that's when the real light bulbs start to go off in my case. Yeah, well... Exactly. I mean, when you're when you're overseas, actually, everyone else is normal, and you're the one who's not. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, how could you how could you access that sort of that that view of the world if you if you don't leave your own culture? I mean, it's possible, of course, to encounter foreigners in your home country, but uh, and a lot of people think that that gives them intercultural uh uh expertise but actually it it's really one thing to encounter foreigners on your turf and it's something completely different to be the foreigner on their turf and i, I do find that some people think oh well i've worked with you know the chinese over here in america i've worked with the indians over here so i understand i mean you do understand some things but it's really a quantum leap to to, to be the foreigner rather than to be to be um interacting with the foreigner yeah well let's turn the conversation to india since that's what this podcast is about and speaking of india is uh i would consider kind of a, a foundational book for somebody coming here to to learn about but you have a, a new editions that's come out so i want you to give you a chance to speak about some of the new things that people can find in that book yes thank you um yeah, I think that what what inspired the new book, one, the old book came out in 2007, and since then I've done a lot of a lot more work with India, and um, I, I sort of realized things I I didn't realize before. Some of the things in the first book are are pretty basic, um, not not useless, but pretty basic. If you if you've got no exposure to India, it'll help you a lot. If you've got some, then then perhaps you would know some of what's in that book. But since uh, 2000, it was either seven or eight that the book came out, and I've done a lot more work with India, and I've realized other things. So I wanted to put some of that in the book. Uh, specifically, what the, the three new things that the new book has, that the old one doesn't, it's, it's a brand new introduction, which actually illustrates some of the things I keep hearing complaints, for lack of a better word, from from Americans about Indians and, and vice versa. I've been doing a survey for the last eight years with one of my clients. And uh, after the webinars, which often have 100, 150 people, I send a, a follow-up email asking three questions. What is your biggest challenge dealing with the, with the other culture? Mm -hmm. What are you, how have you addressed the challenge? And what's a lesson learned you'd like to pass on to others? And so I've probably done that with over five or 600 people. And I've got great quotes, great um, insights, great answers to those questions. So I, I put a lot of those in, in the new introduction, and I also put it in, in, a, in some lists um, at the end of a new chapter. The new chapter, which is another new element, is called The View from India. And as you rightly noted in your review of my book, really, even though I try to be balanced, Really, the, the focus of speaking of India is more on helping Westerners understand the Indian mindset mm -hmm. than it is on helping Indians understand the Western mindset. Though I do, 
I do have some lists at the end of each chapter for, for Indians, advice for Indians as well as advice for Americans. Right, right. And so in the new chapter, in the new book, uh, the chapter is called The View from India, I actually, it's all about uh, what Indians have to deal with when they deal with Americans. And I have five um, the five biggest challenges that Indians face, and I describe each of those. So it was the idea was to sort of make it, the book a bit more balanced. And then one other new feature is a lot of people ask me about the the aspects of working virtually with Indians as mm-hmm. opposed to face to face. And so there's a there's a three page spread that identifies I think eight of the big I call it the paradigm shift eight of the big things that change when you work virtually with somebody and what what you can do about these things. Um, there's some Indian cultural content to that, but it's a little bit broader. It really would help anybody who works virtually with, with anybody else. Yeah, well... So maybe your readers, I mean, your your um, listeners should know that the the body of the new book hasn't changed, but the introduction is brand new, that chapter is new, and that spread that I just told you about is new. Tell me about, uh, especially the virtual working part, the global working. Somebody's working virtually. They're they're sitting in uh, one country and either managing Indians or they're uh, co-working with them or they're even reporting to Indians uh, working in another location. What are some of those kind of paradigm shifts that you've seen and what are the best responses you've seen so far, some best practices? For example, in, in the traditional paradigm when you're working with people who sit next to you, if you're a manager, you, your, your, your authority, your position, uh, uh, is, is where a lot of your, 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 um, credibility comes from. Uh, and, and also there's a lot of informal managing. When you're managing people who are thousands of miles away, really, uh, it's not your authority or position. It's, it's really influence, it's advice, guidance. It's much more indirect. And, and and you have to manage people at at a distance much more formally, much more deliberately, much more I don't know what I would say um, uh, consciously than you would people that you just run into every day and sort of just manage by by um, juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. So you have to really have systems in place to manage remotely. You don't need those systems with people you're you're seeing every day. So that's. That's one of the changes. What I recommend that people, how they address this, is to is to set up more formal systems for managing, much more structured communication. You're not going to have a lot of unplanned, spontaneous communication. In fact, you're not going to have any. Um, I also encourage people in the U.S. to manage uh, through a senior Indian who's on site. If you try to manage the team yourself, it, it's possible. But it's really hard. If there's a senior person, even the the the, the most experienced team member, um, try to manage uh, a lot through that person. Uh, if you're trying to manage five people remotely, that's difficult. If you're only really dealing with one person and that person manages the five people directly, you'll be more successful. Um, Another uh, example is that uh, in the traditional setting, you have you know un- unlimited opportunities to get to know your staff, mm-hmm. uh, to build trust, to establish strong working relationships. Again, very limited opportunities to do that when you manage people remotely. Um, you have to, re- and so again, the the um, the advice is you've got to you've got to set up 
uh, deliberate ways of getting to know people. One of the one of the things I really encourage is that you 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 need to call people a lot rather than relying on email. As you as, as you know, it's really hard to get a sense of somebody through email. It's much easier to get a sense of them through through talking to them. And of course, video is even better. Video conferencing is better. And actually, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but you know, have more meetings, more conference calls. If the people you're working with are, are are remote, you know the only way, the only really way you can get to see them in action is to have a meeting. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage people to have more meetings, meet more often, make them short if you like. That doesn't matter. But you, you actually, if it's a video conference, you actually see people. It's the only time you see people. And even if it's an audio only conference, at least you you hear people. You you see how they. They respond in real time, and that's that's as good as it's going to get uh, with people you're never going to meet. I don't know how many of these you want me to go into. Um. No, no, those, those two are are good. And I think even in my own experience, so I, I I do some work here in Chennai, but I also work with people who work around India and some in the U.S. And I, I found these things to be really, really good, solid lessons about um, you know making sure yeah your time is structured. So I I have a, a video chat with. Some people that are on my team, you know, at least three times a week, even if it's just for 10, 15 minutes, we oh, go over stuff, um, make sure that they're all in. And a lot of times, because I go into the office sometimes as well, and I always make sure to ask them, you know, is there anything you need here? Uh, somebody mm-hmm. else is not responding to an email or some other connection. And I know that that really makes them feel like they're more a part of the system too that that helps yeah yeah and one one really simple thing i tell people and it sounds really simple but it makes a big difference you know recognize birthdays you know births marriages anything you'd recognize for people who sit next to you in new york you know recognize that for the people who are twelve thousand miles away you know uh it 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 sends such a good message uh, and it's so simple uh, but you know, it's one thing to uh, to congratulate somebody on their birthday two weeks later when you heard about it from somebody else. It's another to congratulate them on the day. I mean, they're really impressed when you do that, and then they realize that they're they're like the people you sit next to, and, and you're treating them the same way, and yeah. that really buys a lot of loyalty. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's shift uh, the discussion a little bit outside of just virtual working in general to to specifically India. You know, you referenced Y2K at the start. Um, you know, that's yeah. been 15 years. Uh, d- what kind of differences do you notice in the the types of uh, people you work with from India? The general feel from uh, from Indians themselves has their vibe changed over these last 15 years or more? Well, um, you know, and stop me if I go on too long, but. Um, as you're aware, what started out for a lot of people with Y2K actually has now expanded into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, there's sort of an unlimited number of um, of, uh, op- of opportunities that Americans are using Indians to, to to help them with. And so, what used to be a limited sort of subset of people who are dealing with Americans now um, there are Indians in all sorts of sectors, all sorts of jobs. Um, of all ages, but especially young Indians, um, working with Americans. So one of the things that is, has changed is just that the the um, the realms in which Americans are working with Indians have expanded sort of exponentially. Um, what that means is that you're not dealing with, with uh, just with IT folks. You're not dealing just with uh, marketing folks. You might be dealing with uh, one of my clients 
they have Indians uh, doing drug trials for them, not doing the trials, but but entering all the the data. Mm-hmm. And so people in all different uh, uh, jobs here in the U.S. are working with people in all different kinds of jobs in India. Uh, so that has changed. Um, one thing I find is that for, I think, obvious reasons, a lot of the Indians working with Americans now, as opposed to 20, 25 years ago when I started this, are really young. Hmm. Um, I would say the average, when I started this with Ernst & Young, as I told you about uh, with Y2K, the average Indians I would meet here in the U.S. were at least 35, 40, maybe 45, middle, middle-aged. Right. Now, when I do work for my clients, a lot of them are dealing with the people who are in their 20s. This might even be their first job working with an American client. So they're, they're really young. They have no work experience, for starters, and they don't have any experience dealing with people outside of India. Mm-hmm. And that's very different uh, from, from the old days. What that means for my clients is that um, you're starting with people who you may have to you may have to mold them, uh, uh, which is fine. They're happy to be molded, but you you, you can't assume a lot of um, of experience. You can't assume a lot of cultural conditioning uh, in the workplace, which is actually good for my clients. If they deal with an Indian who's 45 or 50 and has worked in the Indian uh, environment for 20 years, they're pretty culturally conditioned. Mm-hmm. Take a young graduate who's not worked yet in any environment. Uh, they haven't as yet been been socialized, been conditioned <laughs> so much by the Indian work environment. They may actually be, be easier to work with or easier to shape, for lack of a better word, than, um, than in the old days. Um, and I guess one other thing that I would say, uh, and then you can you can you can ask uh, follow-ups if you like, is that um, we, with younger Indians, a lot of them because they haven't had much exposure to the Indian workplace and only to the U.S. workplace, they tend to think that they think the way Americans do, that they act the way Americans do, and that they're much more American, just to use that example, than their maybe the next generation. Um, and actually, even though they haven't been uh, sort of conditioned by the Indian workplace. They have been socialized by Indian culture. Sure. Uh, they're much more Indian than they think they are. Uh, and, and, and beyond that, they're not nearly as American as Americans think they are. Mm-hmm. They probably are more Western than their middle-aged Indian colleagues who have been in the Indian workplace. Uh, and they think of themselves that way. But what they don't realize is that Americans never would. Um, I do my training both in India and in the U.S., and I have these continuums where I ask Indians to locate themselves on certain concepts, like are they direct or indirect communicators? Do they Are they very sensitive to rank and hierarchy, or are they more egalitarian? Is it a, man, is it a centralized management style they're used to, or is it a decentralized? And I have, I have a few more of those. When I do this workshop in America with Indians who've lived here and are working here, mm-hmm. they always locate themselves on the indirect side of communication, the centralized style of management, the sensitivity to rank and style side of, the, of that concept. <clears throat> Whereas Indians in India who've never really worked in America or, or worked uh, uh, in the Indian environment for so, 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 so long, 
they often put themselves over with the Americans. They think they're direct. They think that they that their work uh, environment is um, decentralized, and they think it's a very egalitarian work environment. Which, which I mean, nobody is wrong. But what what I find interesting is that in, Indians who've experienced both environments realize they uh, see themselves one way. Indians have really only experienced maybe the the U.S. environment, not experienced it, but uh, but worked for American clients. They really think they're very American, and um, and they're not. Well, they are compared to perhaps their forebears, but no American would see them that way. And I tell Americans to be aware of this because I, I tell them a lot of the Indians you work with will think they're just like you. Mm-hmm. Um, you would never think that. Mm-hmm. And that's um, that's important for people to realize. Yeah, and this this actually goes back to uh, an article that we had discussed a little bit earlier that I wrote about uh, just the state of cross-cultural training, intercultural training, and one of yeah. the things that I feel like is a lot of these continuums of, okay, are you direct or indirect? Are you hierarchical yeah. or egalitarian? I feel like there's there's been created, I don't know if there was originally, but there's been created this this inherent bias that, oh, yeah, of course we're egalitarian uh, because that's the right answer. Um, you don't yeah, want to, you yeah. don't want to be hierarchical because that's bad. There's something about that. So, yeah, if someone doesn't really understand all the nuances of that and and the the good side i guess of both of those positions then then yeah they're going to see themselves as one versus the other yeah and i think that's very uh, true what you say there there is as much as one tries not to there is a bias even in how you describe those two let's say egalitarian versus hierarchical uh, unless you're really careful uh one's going to sound much more positive than the other and who wouldn't go for the positive one whether or not it was actually true and and <clears throat> to the present time these 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 concepts these dichotomies they all came out of the west and so mm-hmm. they've certainly got a western bias and and some of them don't even address issues that actually are much more important in non-western cultures because we don't have the issue in our culture <laughs> Yes, now we're getting to some good conversation. This is good. <laughs> I know you're a skeptic about cross-cultural training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not so a, a skeptic. I'm a skeptic of of this heavily westernized kind of this is yeah. this is how we we've studied you and this is how we understand you to be, <laughs> therefore this is what you are. Like I just feel like there's there's got to be some huge piece that's missing that I, that I found myself you know, I, I haven't even come up with a good framework to, to fully understand it all, which, I mean, looking for a framework itself is, is a very Western thing. So just yes, letting, that's right. letting it flow should probably be what we do. But uh, Well, and as you know, um, one of the distinctive things about Indian culture, actually, is the ability to to live very comfortably with, um, with uh, inconsistencies, with, mm-hmm. um, with dichotomies. Indians can... They accept uh, opposites very easily. And in the West, you know, one thing is right and the other isn't. Mm-hmm. But Indians are very comfortable with complete opposites, uh, entertaining a complete opposite. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 there's a a comfort with a level of gray, you know, that it doesn't have yeah. to be black or white. It can just be what it is. Even though in, in the moment, you you almost always think that what you're doing is the right thing. Uh, somebody else points out later that they feel like you did the wrong thing, then maybe you can, okay, yeah, maybe I, I could have done something different. But uh, 
So it's not like people are intentionally doing bad things here, and therefore no, no. Uh, it's like that. But just that, that even the yeah. way to look at ethics and morality like that is it's it's a totally different world. I you know I've we're almost finishing six years here, and I feel like my my mind has been totally changed um, from this experience more than anything else I could have imagined. Yeah, well, you wrote about that gray. I think in your uh, how to avoid dying in India. I think that's one of your um, one of your I forget what it was, eight or nine different pieces that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. it's very important because people think that, um, you know, this idea of absolutism that, that there is a right yeah, and a yeah. wrong, and and yeah. and I'm not going to say that that that's not true, but uh, when you try to impose that on on everyone else and aren't willing to see that there are levels of, of that, um, mm-hmm. then that, that mm-hmm. that's where a lot of conflicts can come from. Well, um. I know you've been speaking for so many years. You have to get into this phase where you um, you become very comfortable. You come to India, you know, maybe once a year, once in, in three years. Anything that you find that, you know, you should be the most adapted person uh, when it comes to working with Indians. Are there any things that, that still kind of come off as difficult to do or, or things that you haven't quite adjusted to yet? Um, well, I don't, I mean, probably I... I... I used to I used to have a hard time with with people you know telling me what I wanted to hear and then it, it turned out not to be quote unquote uh, true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't struggle with that so much anymore. But but uh, as as much experience as I've had with Indians, I I, I do sometimes get get misled. Um, they're not trying to mislead me, but I, 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 I end up being in a state of misled. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a little frustrating. Uh, that, that's still a little frustrating. I think I'm better at it. Um, I'm just trying to think. I can't think of, um, you know, one of the things I've been surprised by when I was in India in, um, in uh, July, and actually you mentioned this in your, um, it's something I read by you. Uh, I have the, I have a slideshow that I give, and, um, I try to put really nice photos, mostly from National Geographic or someplace like that, in the slideshow. Mm-hmm. And of course, we pick the really exotic photos, which show, you know, kind of traditional India. Mm-hmm. And I use those here in the U.S. too, but I, when I was in Hyderabad, I used them, I used them the first day I did some training for, for one of my clients, and really at the first break, an Indian woman came up to me and she said, where did you get your photos? And I said, oh, from here and there. And she said, you know, we're not like that anymore. And um, and she was offended, basically, yeah. because um, I was picturing an India that some people live in, but certainly nobody in the room that I was teaching. And uh, I thought to myself, here I am, this cross-cultural guy, <laughs> sort of an expert, for lack of a better word, and it never occurred to me that, of course, people would see it that way. So luckily, I went back to my room after that, I mean, uh, after the session, and found some photos of urban India, you know, that, that weren't quite so traditional, and then it went fine. But I guess I'm not answering your question, but what I am what I am saying is that even people with a lot of experience like me, I mean, there's there's so much stuff we don't know, and there's so much stuff we don't get. And you got to stay humble in this profession. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to get very uh, and it is it, humility is a great virtue, but it's the more sort of recognition you get, the less likely you are to be <laughs> humble. Which of course pride goeth before a fall, and 
and I, I have fallen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love that example you gave because that was my exact experience when I was I was doing some work, putting together some presentations <clears throat> for people. It was an Indian company I was working for, <clears throat> and and every time I put together some slide. Um, I had I had this collection of, of nice photos to, to pull from, but uh, yeah. every time it was, you know, you can't use that picture um, because <laughs> it was a picture of, um, you know, a, a poor Indian or somebody from a village setting yeah. or something that they've, that the management I was working with felt like, you know, no, that's not who we are. Um, yeah. Recognizing, yeah. okay, that, that is, that exists, but that's not the image we're going to put out there. Um, so yeah, that, no. that's a huge yeah. thing. And after I, after that happened, I thought, you know, how would Americans like it if some Indian came over and all the, the only pictures they showed were sort of like a pig farm, I don't know, and a, maybe a ghetto or, or, you know, some really rural area. And, and how would we like it if that was the image of America that, that, that this guy had? Yeah. Well, good. Uh, Craig, why don't you wind us up here with um, with two tips? You know, you've been speaking for 25, 30 years. I'm sure you do this all the time. Um, if, if people uh, just want to know something, let, let's talk to people that have been here for a while, people who have been here for five years or more, been working with Indians for mm -hmm. a long time. What's what's something fresh, crispy you can give them or just a reminder that they can take away from this conversation? Well, I guess one thing, I don't know how fresh it is, but I, I, I can't emphasize it enough is... Um, you know, never assume you've understood what the other person said to you. I mean, that applies in, in, in any context, actually, including one's own culture. But, of course, there's much more scope for misunderstanding in another culture. So don't assume you've understood. You know, ver ch check your understanding. You know, at the end of a, a meeting, at the end of a conference call, you know, say to the other person, so I'm, I'm taking this away from this uh, exchange. Did I understand you correctly? Um, and then if you didn't, I, I found that Indians, uh, will be quite willing to correct your misunderstanding. They'll be, they'll be incredibly polite, but they, they will do it. So that's maybe not a, maybe not a, a, a brilliant tip, but it's one that I, I can't yeah. emphasize enough. Yeah, very good. Another, another kind of, kind of related, uh, and I do bring this up all the time is that, you know, when somebody does something that really confuses, um, annoys, frustrates, maybe even offends you, if that person's from another culture, you know, there's a 99% chance that that was never their intention. And you might be confused, frustrated, or offended, but that's, that's not what that person was trying to achieve. And as soon as you realize that, you can sort of calm down. You still have to work out, you know, a modus operandi, but but if we react, which is human nature, when people do things that are frustrating, you know, um, we're not going to have a very good relationship with them, or we're going to try to stop having a relationship. But if you realize that, of course, that's not what the other person intended. I, I tell people, you know, believe it or not, people in India really don't get up every day thinking, how can we offend Americans <laughs> today? Um, and if you can, if you can catch yourself reacting, you're going to react. It's just human nature. But if you can catch yourself and realize that this is not what the person meant, then that changes the dynamic completely. Uh, but if you don't, if you don't really know about culture, you don't have the expertise really to step back and say, this can't mean what I think it means. And anytime you can do that, you're going to be successful. 
Excellent. Well, I think those are two great tips to take away from this. Craig, thanks so much. This has been so fun. Uh, I wish we could go on for a lot longer. Maybe our, my whole second year is going to be with you. Um, but I better cut off before everyone else gets bored of me. Um, your website is, is craigstorty.com. Uh, that's that's right. S-T-O-R-T-I.com. That's right. Um, new book coming out. It's out now, the new edition? The new edition it just came out in October. Yeah, that's the revised edition of Speaking of India. All right. Anything else uh, that you want to give to people uh, that they can connect with you? No, no. I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, grateful for the interview. And uh, I, when I discovered your website the other day and some of your blogs, I was absolutely fascinated. And I'm a guy who knows some of this, <laughs> not as much as you. And uh, it, it was really great. So I hope your, I hope your audience will. Uh, will realize that they're getting first-class information, not something that uh, that even people like me necessarily understood. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot coming from you. Yes, well, thank you, Neil. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, bye. Take care. This has been the Working with India podcast, produced by LearningIndia.in. Please subscribe to the show to get new updates as soon as they're released. And as always, don't do India alone.